You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today on the podcast, Reverend Dr. Carla Sundberg, president of Nazarene Theological Seminary and professor of historical theology. She's a total rock star, and we hope you end up loving her as much as we do. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Rick Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Carla Sundberg. Carla is the president of Nazarene Theological Seminary and professor of historical theology. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I think that's kind of an interesting story, and it kind of depends on which side of my family I go to, my dad or my mom because they both sort of have interesting stories, but because of them, I'm in the Church of the Nazarene, Mm -hmm. really. Um, My parents, at the time I was born, were missionaries for the Church of the Nazarene in Germany. So, um, you know, I was born and brought to church, so that's kind of how I got there. But, you know, my mom's story is really fascinating, I think. She grew up as a young girl up on the prairies of Canada, and her family, um, her grandparents, were born in Russia along the Volga River, and they were Russian Germans who emigrated to the United States and then made it up to Canada. And my grandparents are the first ones to have been born in North America. Mm. And my mother didn't learn to speak English until she went to elementary school. They were in a German colony in Canada. Wow. And so she grew up up there, and those were very religious people, congregationalists um, and stuff but through the years the church the family just really didn't go to church much or anything and finally when my mom was about 18 years of age the family moved to Calgary Um, what's also interesting is my mom is a really smart lady and she graduated eighth grade at 12 years of age wow up on the prairies and there was no more school to go to she was done Mm. And so she stayed home and she learned how to cook for massive amounts of people at harvest and stuff. She did go to a tailing school and learned how to make clothing. She sews incredibly well. But um, so now their family moves to Calgary. And when they moved to Calgary, her parents said, you know, this family needs to be going to church. We need to find a church somewhere. And somehow, um, the two older brothers by then were married, but there were four other kids still at home. So the parents and the four teenagers headed off and ended up finding First Church of the Nazarene in Calgary, Alberta. Wow. And I think the church was probably pretty excited to have a family with four teenagers show up, you know, (laughs) and loved them and warmly embraced them. And evidently, it was at a period of time where there was just incredible growth going on in Calgary Mm. in the Calgary church. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Edward Lawler was the pastor who went on to become a general superintendent. But at um, 18 years of age, my mom went to camp, and it was at the camp that she, for the first time, really heard the message and Mm. understood the message of salvation, and just gives this incredible testimony of really getting saved. And part of getting saved was the Lord said, and now you need to go to to high school. Mm. And uh, so at 19 years of age, being obedient to that call, my mother went to Canadian Nazarene College, which then had a high school, and started ninth grade at 19 years of age. Wow. Yeah, in Red Deer, Alberta. And it was a poor, poor little school where mom went. But she went, and she went for four years. Wow. And graduated high school. And when she graduated high school, she said, I felt like the Lord said, now you need to go to college. And she said, nobody in my family had ever been to college. And she said, here I am, a woman at 23. Mm. Um, It just didn't really seem to make sense and yet she packed her bags and she moved to Nampa, Idaho to go to Northwest Nazarene College at the time. Um, she had done so well in high school that she basically matriculated out of two years of college and only had to do two more years to, to finish. So interestingly there, so there's where she meets my dad. But let me just back up on that story because my dad's family, they were all in Nebraska and his par- his grandparents came over He was from Denmark. She was from Sweden. They were poor immigrant kids that met uh, as they arrived in America. Wow. And they ended up in the prairies of Nebraska, homesteaders. Mm. And they had been religious people back home. 
Um, as a matter of fact, I have my great-grandmother's uh, Danish prayer book in my office. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I love that. But um, they quit going to church. They got too busy They're trying to build a farm and build a homestead and everything. And they tell this story about one night. It was one of those Midwestern thunderstorms, and the house gets struck by lightning. And they and all the kids, I think it's six kids, they get out of the house, but they stand out in the rain, and they watch everything burn to the ground that they had put everything into. And this is kind of our family folklore, but evidently, and her name was Christina, my great-grandmother, she looks at great-grandfather and says, Sunday we're hitching the horses and we're going to church, aren't we? Papa, God's going to be back in our lives. And that night became a turning point, and from then on, they hitched the wagons, and they would take the kids to church every Sunday. And out of those kids, their daughter, Ingle, became a missionary to Africa back, you know, between World War I and World War II. It's an incredible story about Ingle. Another one became a United Methodist minister, and then my grandfather happened to be around at the time that the Church of the Nazarene was forming in the Holiness Revivals, and he got caught up at the Nazarene camp meeting and met a young lady, my grandmother, who also was at the camp meeting, and so they married, and so he was the only Nazarene out of the family and became a minister and uh, pastored for 50 years in Nebraska and planted little Nazarene churches all over the state and built the buildings with his own two hands. Mm. They were incredibly poor, had three kids, my dad had an older sister, then my dad, and then a younger sister with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And when she was born, and that's just part of dad's life too, was that the people the church really kind of piled on, and my grandma and said obviously she had sinned and done something wrong to deserve this child. Mm-hmm. And not only did my Aunt Shirley have Down syndrome, but she had a congenital heart defect. They called her a blue baby back then. But when she was born, she was deprived of oxygen, so she wasn't just Downs. She had severe brain damage as Mm. well. She never learned how to talk. Um, My grandparents loved her and cared for her her whole life. Amazing story. But my dad had to work really hard himself, you know, as a kid. So he was very entrepreneurial. He was always out selling stuff to things, people on the streets and stuff. But eventually he knows he's got a call, and so he goes off to Northwest Nazarene College. So it's out there then that this young Gerald, who's four years younger than my mother, Alice, because she's older, right? Uh, they meet out there at NNC and um, fall in love. And, uh, you know, my parents are still alive. Dad is 89, Mom is 93. They will celebrate their 69th wedding anniversary this wow. year. Wow. But they met, and both of them, a passion for ministry. My mom got her bachelor's degree in Christian education. Mm and dad in religion, and then they went off to be pastors and, and stuff. So, you know, my parents are really who have been so formational in my life, and I have to say this about my parents. My parents are the best witness to what it meant for me to be a Nazarene. Mm-hmm. My parents, and I don't say this just because it's my parents, but they are genuine through and through. I mean, they're now in a retirement community, and they love on and pastor everybody that they can there. Uh, You know, mom still worries about taking food to somebody or praying for somebody or going Mm -hmm. to their room. There was never anything phony about my parents. They were what they were genuinely through and through. And I I still remember once one night eating supper in Germany as a kid. And I was still living in post-World War II Germany. I mean, it's hard to believe I was born in the 60s, but we still had bombed out buildings in town. You know, the, the country hadn't recovered totally yet. And we had a lot of men in our city that were the returned soldiers with nowhere to go. And um, and I just remember one of them coming to the door at night and ringing the doorbell and was so hungry. You know, and my mom going and making a sandwich and taking it to them. And there was another soldier that showed up at one of our camps in Kaiserslautern and his hands were all wrapped up in bandages. They were horrible and my mom would take the bandages off every night. and and put clean his hands and put medicine on him and bind him back up and we eventually learned that he had returned from the from the Russian front and his wife had thought he was dead and so she had remarried and oh. he came back and he had no family mm. and my parents just loved on this man and his hands eventually healed and then we found out he had been a concert organist wow and he gave his life to Jesus and played 
in the church until mm-hmm. he passed away. So, man, how did I get here? I often tell people, I know some people have had struggles along their way, but my parents were my pastors for most of my life. Mm-hmm. And I think I just always felt a passion for what they did, and I wanted to be like them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's a long story, but that's how it got me in the church. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So you grew up in Germany. Tell me about your call to ministry. Well, I did. Um, I grew up the first eight years of my life in Germany, and then we moved to America. I would say that was, for me, the first tra- really traumatic event that I remember in my life. Mm. I couldn't fathom what it meant to leave Germany and move to a foreign country, which America was foreign for me. Mm. I remember standing in the Frankfurt airport. I can still see it. I still remember what coat I was wearing, and I was holding onto my doll. And the German people were singing, God be with you till we meet again, in German. And I felt like as a kid, my heart was just ripping out of my chest. Mm. I thought, what in the world is this? Where, where are we going? And yet, I have to say that I think God, God uses all those circumstances of life. One thing I'd have to say is, I am a third culture kid, in terms of not really knowing where home is and where you put your roots down. But I think in some ways it also makes you flexible in terms of doing ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Even as a kid, I used to dream about what it would be like to be in ministry. And and I don't know, this is a weird confession, but I never saw women in ministry. And so I used to look at the nuns and I thought, isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Because that was the only example uh, that I ever saw of a woman in ministry were nuns. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was Nazarene, and I knew I couldn't be a nun. And so I didn't even know how I could be in ministry, except for the example of my mother. Mm. But my mother came through in an era where, I mean, my mother was such a partner with my dad, and yet many times was never recognized as such. You know, degree in Christian education. She helped to start European Nazarene College. She taught in that program there, and yet... She told me that they used to go places and they would introduce my dad as the missionary. Mm. You know, and yet growing up at home, mom was the one that ran all the vacation Bible school, leading the kids in the neighborhood to Christ, leading women to Christ, leading the music ministry. I mean, she was doing all this stuff. So there was a part of me that just said, it doesn't matter whether there's real affirmation or not. If God has called you to do things, my mother was the example of, you just do it. Mm. And so um, I've never necessarily thought, uh, I think I've always lived with the fact that I will do everything I can to serve God faithfully, even if I don't have any official affirmation to do that. You know, even as a teenager growing up at Kansas City First Church, at that time, the church was uh, worshiping at the seminary. Attendance had really gone down. One of my good friends and I, Judy, we used to teach the four and five-year-olds. So by the time I was 15 and 16, I was already like running a little department at the church. (laughs) You know, and that just seemed normal that I would do that. So I was always really involved. Eventually, by the time I was maybe about 19, I was the NYI president at Kansas City First Church Mm -hmm. and really involved then with the youth. My husband and I, when we got married, we didn't even attend Sunday school together because we were both helping to start two new Sunday school classes. So we were each going somewhere. I mean, so this is just a part of who I always was. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter if there was like I said, a seal of approval from the church on it or not. If you have a passion to serve God, you're just going to serve God anyways. I will say this, that as I was going to go to college, I had thought that I would study music. And as I went through a season in my life of really seeking a deeper walk with Jesus Christ, um, I remember the Nazarene Church, I was talking about entire sanctification, and I remember telling my mom, Mom, I, I really struggle with that. I don't think I really get it. And my mom's saying to me, when there are things that you don't understand, just pray about it and ask God to give you wisdom and to give you clarity. Mm-hmm. And so I just began to really pray. And now there are two things that kind of converged that I don't think I understood at the time how they were converging. But as I was preparing to go to college, I felt like the Lord was telling me to go into nursing, which I thought was crazy. I don't even like the sight of blood. I mean, I'd passed out in high school doing a blood test. I mean, this is not something that I would want to be doing. I'm thinking, 
Lord, there is just no way I'm going to be a nurse. Sure. No. And I mean, it was flat out, no. <laughs> um, and yet, it went on for months and months and months and wrestled with it until I had this aha moment that this was a spiritual battle. And this was a battle about whether I was going to follow God with all my heart, whether sometimes I didn't understand it or not. And could I do that? And I still remember the night where I finally said, okay, I don't get this. This seems like the craziest idea in my life. But God, all I want is you. Mm -hmm. I want everything that you have. And if this is what it takes, then okay, I'll be a nurse. And I cannot describe to you that moment in my life, but I realized it was a complete and total letting go Mm. of anything and of my own control of my own destiny. Mm. Um, I went back to my room that night. I was at a camp. My Bible opened to Habakkuk and said this. It said, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I will do something in your day that you could not imagine even if you were told. And if I would have been told at 18 years of age that I was going to go and, and this is part of my own story. You see, I was born the summer that the Berlin Wall came up. And if God would have ever told me I was going to go behind the wall to do ministry for him, I never would have imagined that that could have ever happened. Mm-hmm. And so I went to college and declared a nursing major. And I got to school the first day. And there was a mix-up in roommates. And I had a roommate I didn't even know. And her name was Judy, and Judy was a brittle, brittle diabetic. And I had no clue what that meant. And her blood sugars were so messed up that first week of school that she would wake up at 5 in the morning having seizures because her blood sugar had bottomed out. And and all of a sudden, it's like, what is going on You know, in my room? And one of her friends from her home church came down and said, we've got to get you know, sugar water in her. And I mean, we're just like, what in the world? She had to have two injections a day. I mean, this is the girl that couldn't stand looking at needles or anything. Mm-hmm. And the Lord sticks this person in my room. Mm. Well, what happened was that little by little, it was okay. It became normal. Yeah. And little by little, she taught me how to do her shots. We were sneaking grapefruits out of the you know, dining hall and <laughs> practicing back in our room. But the Lord knew that I could not have walked into class mm-hmm. and handled it. I needed to have this gradual. And so God sticks Judy in my room. Yeah. I mean, and it, so it was like one thing after another. I guess what I want to say is the call to nursing, I believe, was the call to ministry as well. When we went to Russia as missionaries, it was my being a nurse that gave us the cover, if you want to put it that way, of being with Compassionate Ministries Mm -hmm. and that I could bring my husband along with me. It wouldn't have worked if we would have both been religion majors. Wow. And so that was part of the call, was to be obedient and to do that. Now, the passion to do call always was there when... um, when Chuck finished, my husband was in seminary. He finished seminary. We went to St. Louis, and he was pastor of youth and music at the church in St. Louis. And I worked at a toxic waste cleanup site. That was exciting as their as their health and safety officer. Not only did I do that, but we were always engaged in ministry together. We were there about almost two years, and then we moved to Austin, Texas. We were down there for five years, and. You know, down there, I did um, the evangelism, the outreach, ran vacation Bible school, uh, helped take care of youth, um, (laughs) all those things. But I wasn't really a pastor. Right, right. I just did those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It was on the mission field when officially, if I could say this, there was this time when I was going to go and I had started graduate school in healthcare. The Lord had been working on me and with my husband, and I had become more aware of the fact that there were some actual women clergy out there. Let me just preface this to say that when I was going through college, it is when we hit the lowest point of women clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. We were down to 4%, and the 4% were the leftovers from the earlier era. Mm. There weren't weren't women going into ministry. It Mm. wasn't happening. There There was no voice to do that. I don't remember seeing any... There weren't any gals that were religion majors, as far as I know. Wow. You know, so why would you even think that was an option? Mm. 
Yeah, so a lot of things happened, but the Lord just affirmed in my life. One day, my husband said to me, he goes, you know, if you'd be a boy, you'd been the preacher in the family. I've got three older brothers. None of them are preachers. Mm -hmm. And um, I literally felt like I felt like the voice of God said, and why aren't you? Mm. And I remember saying, but because I'm a girl. (laughs) I mean, that was kind of my excuse is like, why are you asking me this? Obviously, you know that I haven't been able to do this. And I felt like the Lord said, now's the time. And the Lord also very, very clearly said this, and I can still hear it, submit to the system. Mm. And that was interesting because at that point, we would come back home on furlough. I was preaching in churches all over the country. you know. And so there's kind of this part of you that goes, what do you mean? I mean, I'm already doing all this stuff. Why do I have to submit to the system? And it was just clear. So it was like, I knew I had to go to school. I knew I had to go to seminary, and I knew I had to go through the ordination process. Mm. Even though I was already doing all the stuff, you know, that you did without the official because that was the only way I was allowed to do it, Mm. was to do it kind of outside the system. So at 39, um, part of what happened is my husband then asked asked me to shift from doing Compassionate Ministries to taking over the theological education program in the former Soviet Union, and that was just blowing up. I mean, it was just amazing how much it was growing. And we had 250 students at the time in six countries and three languages. So we um, we identified people we wanted to have to be, na- they were native Russian speakers at the would-be faculty. Mm-hmm. We ended up in a partnership with Nazarene Theological Seminary to help them to develop as faculty. And so I would come back and forth twice a year to Nazarene Theological Seminary with all my dear, dear friends from the former Soviet Union. And we all lived together at King Conference Center, and we studied together, and we went through seminary together. And then I had the incredible privilege of being ordained on the Russian North District in Moscow with my Russian friends. Mm -hmm. We were ordained the same night together. Um, And that's just an incredible thing. And, you know... I think it was, you know, I mean, it's part of my journey. It's just the era in which I was raised and how God just started then to officially be able to open the doors for for the possibility of being more um, officially engaged in ministry. That's awesome. So, so kind of tell me about where you went from there. Um, so where we went from there um, is, interestingly, not too long after that, we moved back to the United States and... Um, and we just felt very clearly that the Lord was telling us to do that. Uh, when we had first gone to Russia, our regional director was Dr. Franklin Cook. He had talked to us. He said, you know, in the rest of the world, he said, we have gone out as missionaries, and we've never thought about an end date. We kind of went out open-ended, you know, that we would just have missionaries there. He said, you know, when we went to Cuba, nobody thought about the fact that maybe the Nazarene Church wouldn't get to keep working in Cuba. And he said, the infamous story is the day that the missionaries left Cuba and they had not developed leadership. And basically, they left the keys to the properties on the kitchen table and left the country. And that was it. And the church was on its own. He said, so I just want you to imagine that the door will not stay open for long. Mm. He said, so if you had a 10-year strategy of what you were going to do, and that you wouldn't be allowed to be missionaries any longer, what would you do to develop leaders for the future? So it's kind of a different way, actually, of looking at doing missions because you're looking at rapid leadership development um, so that they, in turn, can be the church planters and, and do the work. So it's, um, yeah, so that was that was part of what we had done. And so every year that you're there, you're handing off what you're doing to somebody else because you're constantly trying to, to turn over your work. So we now had been there 12 years, going on 13. And my husband and I felt like we needed to enter into a real season of prayer about what, what's next because we'd kept doing this, you know. As we were praying about it, we were reading, um, the Lord led us to scriptures from Isaiah. We, were, we had committed to this month of November of really kind of praying together every morning, reading these scriptures, seeking God's leading. Well, the scriptures we led to were all about the children of Israel coming home from exile. Mm. And it kept talking about going home. And we're going, what are you talk, what, what's that about? I mean, we're looking at what's the next season here. And oddly enough, uh, we had committed to that whole month on December 1st. 
At 6.30 in the morning, the phone rings in Moscow. Chuck was off at a meeting in Switzerland, but I answer the phone in Moscow. And it's a district superintendent from Northeast Indiana. And he said, uh, you know, I know we're not supposed to do this, and we don't normally call missionaries who are active on the field, but there's a church here in Indiana that would really like to interview you guys to be their pastor. Would you be willing to consider that? Wow. That hadn't happened in 13 years. We're going, okay, maybe that's God, you know. Oddly enough, the next morning at 6.30 in the morning, another district superintendent from the United States calls and says, I have this church, and uh, they really want to interview you guys to be their pastor. Would you even consider doing that? And we're going, okay, Lord, you don't have to, like, totally hit us over the head. We get it. You want us to go. Um, so we did. We, we interviewed with that church. We felt like we had to take the churches in order, even though they were one day apart. So we, we started with the one in northeastern Indiana, and we felt like God was clearly leading us there. And that was interesting. When we went in to interview, the district superintendent said to the church, he said, now, you know they're both ordained elders, and he said, you can't just have a twofer. He said, so if you want to hire her, you need to hire her as well and pay her. That district had not had a positive experience with co-pastors. Mm. And so they really didn't want to explore that. Mm. And so they hired my husband as the lead pastor and me as the pastor of evangelism and discipleship. And so we came over and we moved into that space. That church dear, dear, wonderful people at Grace Point Church, Nazarene in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's an amazing church that just flies under the denomination's radar screen. But they helped us transition back to America, which was not easy. And I often say they put up with me when I was weird because I, I really struggled with coming. And, you know, people kept saying to me, welcome home. And I'm thinking, I've never lived in Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived 21 years in Europe. This is not home. Um you know, I will also say this, that um, it, it's awkward when you make such a major, major move in your life from a whole continent to another, or in the Church of Nazarene from one region to another, um, suddenly you're not sure where you belong. Mm-hmm. And where we had been very engaged with all the leadership on the region, and um, I was on the Education Commission, on, on the Course of Study Committee, and all this stuff in Europe and you come home and now you don't fit anywhere. Mm-hmm. And nobody even knows that you've done any of those things or that that's part of who you are, you right. know, or what you have to offer. So I will say it was a bit of a wilderness season for me. And I think, you know, even the church, uh, it, it, there was kind of an interesting situation. A couple of guys in the church were kind of strategic consultants and, and they kept insisting that they wanted to work with Chuck on strategic planning. And Chuck would ask me to come along. And um, because whenever we've done strategic planning, it was usually me that helped to drive the strategic planning. And uh, finally, these men were, they said to me, they go, we just want to work with Chuck. We don't want to work with you. I was like, okay. So I just backed out of it. Now, a few years later, they came back to me and they said, you know, we just didn't get it. We didn't understand how you two worked or how what you brought to the table. And, and we're kind of sorry we didn't realize that you were also leader, you know, mm-hmm. in all this. So, so that was interesting. But the Lord used that opportunity for me to be able to go to, um, I, I did my PhD during that time. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it was sort of a wilderness, figuring out where do I belong here. I wasn't as engaged, you know, but... You know, it turned out to be a good thing in terms of then finding my way and using that time to really study and to further my studies. So, you know, God always uses those experiences in good ways. That's awesome. You know, in the middle of that, just some other thing that happened was that um, Vicki Kopp had been on the planning committee for Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy. Mm-hmm. And they needed another Nazarene representative and blessed her heart she felt like oh Carla's just come back let's you know maybe she'd like to take my place on this committee so I went to the Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy Conference in San Diego California and I think this must be 2006 and so I went to this meeting at the end of the conference where um, I was going to take Vicki's place and help plan you know whatever they needed for the next conference or something well 
while we're eating lunch there, Susie Stanley, who's the president of the group, and I didn't know her. It's my first time to ever be in a meeting with her. She pulls out a piece of paper, and she reads a letter of resignation to all of us, and then folds it up and walks out of the room. And we're all sitting at this table going, what does this mean? We, we don't know. And I'm, I'm here like, I don't even know much about this, and I'm here to help plan something. <laughs> now, the cliff note version of that is that we discovered that we were the board of directors, and we now own the organization. <gasps> And um, and within two years, was it? I'm, I'm president of Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy and helped to lead it for a number of years. And that was an incredible privilege. Wow. And I got to know so many women and so much of the leadership of many of the holiness denominations across the country. Mm. So that was kind of one of those completely unexpected things that God put into my life. And I'm really grateful for that um, and that opportunity. That was really neat. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, whatever. I'm here at this meal to help. You know, I thought like I'd be planning who could help sing songs. So Right? Yeah. So so tell me about kind of the next step from that church in Indiana. Well, you know, I will say this. I really did enjoy my work a great deal um, as I had the privilege of so many people coming to know Jesus. And I had my Sunday school class. They called themselves Carla's Misfits, and <laughs> I, I did all of the uh, membership classes and helped, uh, you know, just a lot of things, it, and it was a great team to be a part of, and the Lord was really doing a lot in that church. We, uh, mm, wait, wait, what did you, what do you mean, what do you think they mean by Carla's Misfits? Oh, by Carla's Misfits? Um, well, because most of them came uh, with issues, and the Lord was really working on them. I mean, so, uh, how do you put it this way? They were the people that had were being saved from drug addiction and alcoholism and porn addiction, and mm-hmm. they weren't the long-standing people in the church. These were people that the Lord was cleaning up and saving, or the divorced, or the ones that, you know, it was kind of like my own little celebrate recovery group, mm-hmm. um, and it was just really wonderful. It so we had double services there, and and so. They would sit behind me in the first worship service, like had this whole row full of, of this whole group. And, you know, and then we'd go off and we'd have Sunday school. And um, and it was just, it was a, a wonderful experience. And, I mean, I could go into that for a long time. We, we really worked hard on discipleship. Mm-hmm. And um, the Lord laid on my heart that as leadership within the church that we ought to look for 20 individuals that we would be doing a one-on-one discipleship with. Mm-hmm. And some of those were my misfits. Um, and I think they lovingly would still call themselves that. But, um, you know, so a lot of them that I had, I had 10 women that I would meet with once a month, wow. um, one-on-one. And I used Wesley's discipleship questions with them. Mm-hmm. And I had boil it down to four. Um, how does your soul prosper? What are the means of grace that you're involved in? Um, what opportunities have you had for ministry and how have you availed yourself of them and what temptations have you faced and how have you dealt with them? Mm-hmm. And so I would answer all those questions first and then they would respond to me and um, and we made sure that we were in the Word. I had a Bible reading program that we were in the Word, all of us, mm-hmm. the same way every day. And it was just, um, that was real transformational for me, but also when I see what God's done in the lives of those people, and how they're still really active, mm-hmm. um, that, that's real rewarding to me. Now, how did I end up in East Ohio from there? <laughs> um, well, East Ohio is a district that I had never been to, but the district superintendent had left there, and the district was looking for a new district superintendent, and they it was not going to be just an election at a district assembly. It was one of them that they were working with the general superintendents. And they kind of do it like calling a pastor. I mean, they began to take nominations. And the district superintendent who'd been there before was David Downs, who's now in West Texas. Mm -hmm. David was very, very supportive of women in ministry and had a whole lot of co-pastor couples on this district. Mm. It was really common that you had co-pastors. Wow. A husband and wife team. Mm -hmm. Um, So when the district was looking for a district superintendent, People were being very intentional about giving men and women's names. Mm. So I was nominated, and so was my husband. Wow. Individually, we were both nominated oh, wow. and on this list. 
And they started with quite a long list. I mean, this is how it's been told to me. The general superintendent met with them, and they kept paring down the list, and Chuck and I would still always be on the list. Mm. And finally, they pared it down to five people, and Chuck and I are both on this short list. And this district that liked the idea of co-stuff looks at the general superintendent and says, is there any reason we can't just have both of them? Mm. And so they dreamed up this idea of co-district superintendents. And, um, and they just, <clears throat> it wasn't like they wanted us to convince it of them. This is, they intentionally reached out to us and said, this is what we want. Mm. We would like the two of you. Would you consider doing that? And my husband um, loved what he did. I mean, if you want to say that was his dream church, that was his dream church. Mm. But he also knew that I wasn't, well, how do I put this? I think he felt like I had more potential than I was being allowed to express. Mm. And when this came up, my husband said to me, there's no way we can say no. Mm. He said, this is such an unusual opportunity. And the Lord gave him a scripture that said, you are to do this for the women. And he said, I'll give up my favorite church in the world for the women of the Church of the Nazarene. Oh. And so we did, and we went and we became co-district superintendents. We're the only couple that's ever done that. Mm. And you know what? We enjoyed it. And I think the district really enjoyed it. It was a different kind of model. But, you know, he and I, I mean, by now, we know how to work well together and people ask us how in the world did you do that and um we even chaired district advisory board meetings together not that big a deal you go over the entire agenda in advance and you decide who's going to manage which part of the meeting and we knew who was going to do what and we just led through that we divided up things like um, the different uh, auxiliaries of the district and like I had SDMI uh, and NYI and he had the camp and and missions and and actually they said man we get a lot more attention than we ever got before because the DS couldn't go to all those things but right. now we got two of you you know you can be involved in those things kind together. of divide and conquer yeah yeah and so we usually went to different churches on Sundays um, so the district saw a district superintendent a lot more often mm. we functioned as one office you know, and that was one thing we had to make really clear to people was you call the district office, you ask for the district superintendent, whoever you've talked to, you have talked to the district superintendent. You don't get to say, I don't like what that one said, and I want to talk to the other one. You know, this is it. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah. So we ended up there. You know, also starting even clear back when I was at Grace Point, there were just different opportunities that had opened up along the way for me to serve in different areas that gave me um, more experience, like serving on the NTS board as the alumni um, president. I did that. I started that even back when I was in Fort Wayne. I had served on the pension board for the denomination. So those were a lot of good experiences, even going into being then the district superintendent. And again, even there, um, serving with Mount Vernon Nazarene University and just uh, a lot of experiences that that have been so helpful. And again, I say God doesn't waste anything. And uh, you learn from all of these, and hopefully they help to inform how you do what you do. Mm. So talk to me about the journey from co-district superintendent to what you do now. Well, again, that another interesting step of the journey. Um, uh, it was at General Assembly in June 2013 then, that David Busick was elected general superintendent, and uh, I was on the NTS board. Um, I had been, you know, I'll just tell you this, I, 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 NTS so shaped my life when I answered that call. Um, the people of NTS went out of their way to help us uh, train up the leadership in the former Soviet Union. And when I went to NTS, it wasn't that these people were just academic. They were, again, genuine through and through. Mm. You know, I'll never forget, we, we got stuck in this ice storm in Kansas City, and we were stuck at King Conference Center with half the power out. And, you know, and eventually things thought enough that, um, that Roger Hahn and his wife, they had us come out to their home so we could all take a hot shower and mm. 
they did all of our laundry and they fed us and I mean it was just those kind of things over and over and over again there was such a genuineness Mm -hmm. of that community um, that I I literally fell in love with NTS back then so getting to be alumni president and working with Ron Benefield and then with David Busick um, trying to help raise money for the school and and feeling really passionate about it um, so I think that was part of it. People were aware, you know, of that. The whole journey exactly of, of how that all came about. Um, you know, we have some complicated processes of things in the church. Sure, So sure. there was no, it was not a straight and simple pathway there. But along the way, just trying to trust God for all of that. I do remember, um, you know, finally I was asked if I would come in an interview to be president. And I guess I'll just say honestly now, I had felt called to it. Mm. In, in the process of what all was happening, I literally felt, I felt that God was giving me a love for that place and a desire to make it work. Mm. I mean, it was it was painful watching. It was doing, going through some dark days. It was really painful to watch. It was really painful to watch and be on the board and think, oh, I wish I could do something, mm. you know? And um, I just remember praying and saying, you know, okay, Lord, if you do want me to be involved, you do have to make it abundantly clear that this is what you would want. Yeah. And at the day that I interviewed and, and, and someone else did as well and wonderful, wonderful people, um, but I was elected on the very first ballot and that was such an affirmation of, okay, this is what, okay, Lord, if this is what you want, then we're just, I'm going to give it everything I've got. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what we've been doing for three years, trying to give it all that we've got to the glory of God. And, um, you know, and we've just, we've seen God's hand at work in many ways mm-hmm. to, to help bring us to where we are today. So my husband felt just as strongly that he believed that I was called to be there. Wow. Now, he wasn't quite sure what he was supposed to do. Right. So the district asked him, would you just stay in BRDS? So he did for a year. And after about a year, because we were then commuting, you know, seeing each other, and we just said, you know what, we really like living together. We really <laughs> like each other. <laughs> and uh, and so he gave up being district superintendent. And, and then I think people were thinking, good grief, he's given up the church that he loved. He's given up being a district superintendent. And he came to Kansas City with no job. Wow. And has, he said, you know, I came here to be the supportive spouse of the president of the seminary. Wow. And he has been, although just the other day, you know, part of his journey is he was asked to be interim pastor at a church at the Shawnee Church in Kansas City. Oh. And he's done that for a number of months. And then the church asked him whether he would consider um, becoming their lead pastor. Wow. And he said, well, the only problem is I came down here to be with my wife. And he said, I'd really like to only do this two-thirds time, so I have a third of the time to help her. He said, so I would consider it if you would consider hiring me to be a co-pastor together with my daughter. Wow. And so the church just voted 96% about four weeks ago to extend a call to my husband and my daughter to be the co-pastors of the Shawnee Church, and they will be installed in about two weeks. That is such an incredible story. So that's kind of fun, too. So we're going to have, you know, the baby boomer and the millennial. You know, she graduated from NTS about three years ago. Well, it sounds like a power team. I I just can't wait to see what God's going to do there. So, you know, I want to go back to this and just say, um, I'll never forget that night when I was 18 years old. And it wasn't really about being a nurse. Mm -hmm. But it was willing I think it was this whole thing of, will you just trust me with whatever I want to do? I had a student ask me, has this always been your career trajectory, you know, to get to this place? <laughs> I thought, if really, if you knew, <laughs> you'd think, how in the world did she ever get here? Right. I don't know. But I will tell you this, that just the journey with God becomes far more than anything we could ever even imagine in our wildest dreams. And so I just... That wholehearted yes to I don't understand, but I mm. will serve you because I will serve you. Mm. Oh, that's just amazing. I feel like we should end it right there, but I have a couple more questions I okay. really want to ask okay. you. 
Um, so I know that kind of every president uh, brings something new and has visions and passions. And I, I would wonder, like, in my mind, I assume that you bring something unique to the table at NTS and that you've done things and encouraged things and nurtured things that have been um, part of who you are. And I was just wondering if you can kind of tell us about your journey at NTS and what that looks like for you. Okay. I think one thing, and Roger Hunt teases me about this, he says, you'll just always be a missionary. <laughs> and that's really true. Yeah. So I think it's that missionary spirit is part of what I bring to the table. I think mm -hmm. that's part of my passion for our community. You know, I mean, because you just begin to think that way contextually and how do I do those kind of yeah. things. So I think that's that's part of what I think I bring to NTS. Um, I think it was actually really good. I, I have had my feet in academia and in the church for a long time, both mm. kind of straddling that fence. Yeah. Um, I think we've really got to figure out how do we really partner together because we really are stronger together. Mm. And so I think that's part of what I, I think I have is I'm from both places, mm. and both places have helped to make me who I am, and I believe deeply in the church and the academy, wow. and in the church and the academy strengthening one another. So I do think that maybe, I mean, my hope is that we sense more of a closeness of the church and the academy mm -hmm. these days, mm -hmm. and um, that we just have to, to work you know, in that way together. I think I have a tad bit of my dad's entrepreneurial spirit in me. Um, I think people would say that, you know, <laughs> that, um, that so that you're, you're trying to think creatively of even how do we come up with income and, and mm. things, uh, how do we diversify our revenue streams and sure. those kinds of things. So we talk much more about those things these days. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories about my dad that I have to just chuckle about is um, years ago as he was a missionary, he was trying to have enough money for the work in Germany, and he had figured out that you could Im export VWs to America and if you did that like you sold them that you got a rebate because they wanted you to help get VWs sold in America <laughs> and so he had this he called it the Alice Schmidt export business which is my mother's maiden name he named it after my mother and so he was exporting cars to make money for the work of the Church of the Nazarene wow. in Germany until one day the police showed up to <gasps> arrest my mother and my mother had no idea that my father had started the Alice Schmidt export business and that there was actually a limit on how many cars you were allowed to export. And Alice had exported too many cars. So Alice was not too happy with Jerry at that point. But uh, they did not haul my mother off to jail, but Dad had to stop the export business. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, I, so I do, you know, kind of talk about those kind of things. I think I bring that to the table. You know, probably just who I am in terms of even my management style is probably different than what they've experienced before. Um, and for some people, they have to get used to that. But um, for others, I think they like it. Um, you know, to me, and most of us, I think we feel this days that there's a, a lovely, warm spirit at NTS. Um, that thrills me. Yeah. I want it to be a place, I think... When I go back to what I say about what NTS meant for me, I want everybody that comes in the door to experience that. I mm -hmm. want people to experience this is a genuine place where we do holistic ministry and where it's not just about the academy, but about how God is forming us as a people and how that interacts with the life of the church. How do we respond to the life of the church? And um, I just want God to be glorified in the place. Mm. What are the newest projects that you're most excited about? Oh boy, there's a lot that's going on. Um, that probably one of the really biggest things is our housing project, where the Lord's really helping us to pick up uh, abandoned houses in the community, get those fixed up, and have students living in them. Mm -hmm. um, that's a significant impact within our community. You know, the next thing is the Center for Pastoral Leadership. Dr. Jess Mettendorf leads that, mm -hmm. and we were sitting in a planning meeting this week, and we were just saying this thing's going to become much more than any of us could have ever even imagined. I mean, it's just the potential there is great in the in the little over the first year of doing subscriptions to the lifelong learning section of it we have nearly a thousand subscribers already wow. to this thing and yeah and now seeing partner ministries come and talk to us about how can we be a part of this how can we add to it and we think that the potential of the depth of the resource for pastors and what we're going to be able to offer just continues to grow and i think it's going to grow almost exponentially mm -hmm. and um 
man, that really, really gets me excited. It also provides another platform for, you know, the depth of knowledge that we have at the academy, but how you get it out to the life of the church or into the district. So the CPL becomes uh, an avenue for us to do much more of that than we really have been able to do in yeah. the past. So that's really positive. Um, just even through then, even like through our advancement office, doing some things like um, this uh, Contemporary Issues and Theology Forum, which really was the dream of one of our board members who said, mm-hmm. you know, could we do this? And could we, he said, I think there are people that are lay people that want to be able to come to a place where we can have deep conversation about some of these issues because we're teaching Sunday school and things and we want we want to be able to sit around with theologians and have conversations. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, to me, it it's just, seriously, some days we're all just kind of like, okay, this momentum is just growing to the place where it's just kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. The last question I ask everybody okay. is, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? The Church of the Nazarene is like family. And, you know, we don't always love everything that happens in family. Mm-hmm. And yet, from what I've even shared with you today, this has been the family that has loved me, that has nurtured me, that has educated me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, yeah, they've hurt me. But I guess, why do I stay? Because it is my family. And I love this family. And I want the best for my family. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hope or believe that I can be a part of what I hope is good Mm. and give myself to that. Um, I think when I look at our young clergy, we have incredible potential. Yes. Incredible potential. You know, I just hope that maybe somewhere with what God has me to do, I can help be a place where we help to nurture the incredible young potential that we have but also help to be a bridge to our church and, and help help put those pieces and, and keep them together and keep us flowing in a direction. You know, the Wesleyan holiness message, the message of God's incredible power to transform lives is a message our world needs to hear. Mm-hmm. And not every church is talking about it. I love the Church of the Azarene because I do think that at the end of the day, our theology is one that I really buy into. Yeah. And I want to see it practiced well. That's great. What is your email or social media handles just in case people want to get a hold of you, ask you more questions? I am on Facebook, and as far as I can tell, I'm the only Carla Sunberg, spelled with a C, and there is no D in my last name. So C-A-R-L-A. S-U-N-B-E-R-G. Um, I also have a blog that uh, is a devotional blog that's mm-hmm. every day. Um, it's called Reflecting the Image, and that's on Blogspot. Um, but it's also, I do a link to it on my Facebook page every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that also links to my Twitter, Carla Sun. I believe that's all I am is Carla Sun on Twitter. Cool. But yeah, so those are the places I am. My email is csunberg at nts.edu. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, happy to. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for asking me. Of course.